Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Good morning, Bethany family. Today begins a new series of sermons which I've entitled Praying the Blues. More of an explanation on that series will be given next week. Suffice it to say that today's sermon is entitled, Lament Begins With Me. More than one-third of the 150 psalms in the Bible are psalms of lament. Lament, it's not a common word for us. Let me define it and then describe it. I'll define it by synonyms. To lament is to weep, to mourn, to wail, to groan, to moan. Lament is a profound and overwhelming, physically expressed sorrow. And I remember visibly the Portuguese grandmother of a murder victim whose funeral I was conducting, getting up from her seat, emotionally overcome, and seeking to climb into the casket of her beloved grandson. That, my friends, was lament. We lament over the loss of someone or something very dear to us. We lament when our hearts are broken. We lament when we feel helpless in our circumstances. We lament when we fully realize our sin before God. To unpack this, I will first tell you a biblical story, followed by a personal story, followed by a prayer written this past week by one of our pastors, our worship pastor, Chris Logan. As we begin, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, open our eyes to see, our hearts to embrace, our hands to express, and our ears to hear your word. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I begin with the biblical story. You can find the story in the second second Samuel Chapters 11 and 12, it was spring, and David was the king of Israel. His army was off in battle with the Amorites, but David stayed home in Jerusalem. One evening, David was walking on the roof of the palace. He noticed an exceptionally beautiful woman bathing on the roof of her home. He sent a servant to find out about her. She is Bathsheba, the servant came back to tell him, the wife of Uriah. David sent a different servant to fetch her. She came to him in the palace, and they, well, you know. After a few weeks, she sent word to King David that she was expecting a child. David pulled Uriah from the battlefield instantly and brought him home. David's hope was that Uriah would go home to his wife and sleep with her and ultimately think that the child was his. But Uriah wouldn't go home to his wife. Because his buddies couldn't go home to their wives, he would not go to his. I think Uriah would have made an incredible Green Beret. So, David ordered his general to put Uriah in the front lines, where the chance of his being killed in battle was the highest. And Uriah was killed. Upon hearing the news, David brought Bathsheba home to him in the palace, and she became his wife. That's that, or that was what David thought. 
Shortly after the child was born, the prophet of God, Nathan, confronted David with what he had done. David confessed that he had sinned against God and God's ways. David includes his confession in a psalm that became very public, a psalm of lament. It is the 51st psalm in the Bible. Let me read it for you, David's prayer of lament, and also make comments as we walk through it briefly together. Psalm 51, David is praying. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David is crying out to God for his mercy, for a washing away, for a cleansing that only God could give on the inside and the outside. David continues his prayer. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. David owns his sin. He takes full responsibility for it. And he recognizes that ultimately his sin is against God and God's ways. David recognizes the perverseness of sin that happens in us from the very beginning, even when we're conceived and certainly when we're born. Not that conception is a sin, not that birth is a sin, but already the infant child knows how to do wrong, even though they look so beautiful and so innocent. And David knew that was true in his life. David continues, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, he prays, and blot out all my iniquity. Hyssop was what was used to put the blood on the lintel in the doorposts of the home for Passover. David is saying to God, completely or totally unsin me. He continues, perhaps the most well-known part of the 51st Psalm. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. David is looking for a cleansing, yes, but now a recreation. He's asking God to give him a whole new self, to restore to him the joy of his salvation. You note he doesn't say restore salvation. David knew that was for certain, for God had done that. But the joy of the salvation had gone away in the midst of his sin. So he prays that the joy of his salvation would be restored. And then he says, then I will be in a place where I can teach others 
to avoid what I have done. His prayer continues. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior. He remembers that he not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, but he committed murder with her husband. So, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. David is praying, Lord, deliver me from what I deserve. I will worship you. I will praise you. He knows God well enough to know what God will do. And then he says something profound. I have nothing I can offer you that will be worth anything except this, Lord. My brokenness and my contrite heart. And yet he knows that God will receive it. He will not despise it. It is genuine. He concludes his prayer of the 51st Psalm with these words. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered again on your altar. He's praying, God, may your way and you prosper. And may it prosper your people, and may the offerings we bring from now on be genuine and, as a result, a delight to you. David the king, he acts out on lust, adultery, an attempt at deception, and murder. He has a significant rap sheet. Clearly, this is an abuse of power as a man, as a king, as a servant of God. But David has confessed his sin, and he laments it, and we have the 51st Psalm. Nathan the prophet says this to him when David wonders about his condition. He says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. 2 Samuel 12, the last part of verse 13. Not only was David forgiven, The word about him was profoundly expressed in a sermon by the Apostle Paul in Antioch when quoting from Samuel and Jeremiah, Paul said, quote, God testified concerning him. And here God is speaking. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. End of quote. Acts 13, 22. And now I share a personal story. I have been fortunate to live for nearly 74 years, 56 of those years as a follower of Jesus Christ. And in those 56 years as a Christian, I have given days to speak and act in solidarity with people of color. In April 4th, 1968, the day Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, I was about to graduate from college. I got the horrific news and immediately ran down the hall to a dorm room of a good friend of mine, Jim, an African-American. I found him sitting on his bed in tears. He looked at me and said, I need to be with my people. I knew what he meant. And that night, 
we spent together on the streets of Seattle, together, me with Jim and Jim with his people. That was a day acting in solidarity with my friend of color, Jim, in college. In the mid-1970s, I spent three weeks with the Navajo people of Arizona. I was on their reservation, and we brought friendship and the gospel and provided a Christian camp experience for their children. That was 21 days acting in solidarity with Native American friends of color. Years later, I led a mission trip to Kenya to be with a black pastor friend in his churches on a mission of solidarity and support in bringing the gospel and the teaching and healing ministry regarding the AIDS epidemic that had swept the region. That was 14 days acting and speaking in solidarity with people of color. I helped organize a church-wide build with Habitat for Humanity in Bridgeport, Connecticut, in solidarity and support of an African-American couple in need of affordable housing. That was 60 days acting in solidarity with a family of color. I joined with an African-American pastor friend of mine as his church and the church I was serving did a weekend gather together in the Covenant's Racial Righteousness Project. That was three days of speaking and acting in solidarity with the Church of Color. And during my nearly 20 years pastoring in another church in Connecticut, I was honored to mentor three different pastors of color as they began their ministries. Major portions of 50 days with each of them, advising them with insights and experiences from many years in ministry, and most of all, learning from them and their life experiences. I have followed Jesus for 56 years, and I have given 249 days of voice and action with people of color. 56 years is 20,160 days, and I have only given 249 of them to speak and act for justice and mercy and ministry in solidarity with sisters and brothers of color. That is just over 1% of my days. That's atrocious. I confess. I lament this reality of my life. And by God's grace, I pledge to you to change. For me, the death of George Floyd has become a tipping point. It is time to stand up, to speak up, to act up. Racism in America is not acceptable. And people like me, a white male, a person of privilege, privilege that is neither earned nor deserved, must leverage whatever voice and action I have to do my part in helping to bring an end to racism and the abuse of power. Racism, my friends, is not a political issue, though it will require some politics to be dealt with. Racism is sin. It is in opposition to the will of God. And my silence is also a sin, a sin of omission. Dr. Martin Luther King said it so well. In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, 
but the silence of our friends. I will no longer be a friend who is silent. I will heed the words of my superintendent, Howard Burgoyne, who wrote this past week, and I quote him, I urge you to use your voice to publicly denounce systems and practices that rob our brothers and sisters of dignity and even their very lives. Though it may be difficult, I ask you to be bold. Silence speaks too loudly in the face of continuing injustice. The Holy Spirit poured out upon the Church on Pentecost welcomes and unites all persons, all nations, all cultures to form the beloved community as the children of God and brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ. End of quote. And I will not be distracted. I agree with a colleague of mine who wrote in a recent letter, and I quote him, We must not let the small minority of protesters give us an excuse to change the subject. The rioters cannot let us off the hook from having to speak about the issue of racism. We must be about changing racism, not changing the subject. End of quote. This will not be a perfunctory decision, but one that must be understood to be like a marathon for me. I was challenged in this by the words of the executive board of the Covenant Ministerium that came by email this week. Quote, the inconvenient truth is that no measure of signing statements, saying sorry, or offering condolences will be enough to develop the deep well of discipleship necessary to be accomplices in the work of racial justice. What is needed to join together is not only expressed, but actionable solidarity. With the long view in mind, this solidarity beckons us to grow in awareness of our own complicity, regularly auditing our own lives, and to do our own work to procure resources to strengthen our anti-racist commitments. End of quote. I lament not the 249 days I have spoken and stood with people of color who became my friends. What I lament is my more than 19,911 days I did not speak nor stand with them. Have mercy on me, Lord. And by your Spirit, make the final days of my life count for your will to be done, to no longer tolerate racism, but instead to promote racial justice and equality. I've asked Pastor Chris to conclude this sermon and lead us in a prayer of lament. Thank you, Pastor Chris. In the midst of this week, we have watched events in Minneapolis and around the nation unfold with great sorrow and with great anger. This week has been a hard one for our nation, and for 2020, that is saying something. The prophet Amos wrote, I hate all your show and your pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and your solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and your grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. Prayer is not a last resort. It is a first step that we take as God calls us to action in the midst of sin. And so today, as the body of Christ, 
as the people of the living God, the God who became one of us, a Hebrew, a poor man born in the midst of an empire's occupation. It is to the God who became one of the least of these that we pray together, not as a last step, but as a first step, as a cry of lament for where we find ourselves. And so would you join me as we pray? O oh God, you are our God. And today we earnestly, fervently, anxiously seek you. For we are thirsty, O oh God, for your presence. We long for you together as your church, for we live in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We pray for the families and the communities of George Floyd, of Ahmed Aubrey, and of Breonna Taylor, and the many others. Lord, have mercy. In their despair and anger and shock and helplessness, comfort them, Lord. Today we feel their hurt and their loss because you do. Today we grieve with them. We lament with them. We cry out in anger on their behalf. Lord, as a white man, today I pray for my sisters and brothers of color. How long, O oh Lord? I pray your protection on them. I pray your comfort in their fear. I pray your peace in their sorrow. I pray your prophetic voice be heard through their cries of anger. I pray your mercy and your vision, for in your kingdom there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, but all of us in our ethnic uniqueness and our cultural distinctiveness and our diverse beauty are called sisters and brothers of your son, Jesus Christ. May those of us who are white be called out in our sin. May we own our history. May we own our attitudes. May we own our biases. May we listen with open hearts and minds to the way that your spirit is moving in our sisters and brothers of color. May we hear their cries of lament. May we hear their pain and grief. May we own our responsibility to work towards reconciliation in your name. And Lord, we feel betrayed by those who are meant to keep us safe. And so we are angry. We confess that some of us, many of us, have not spoken up. We have not, as your prophet Habakkuk said, cried violence. And so today, Lord, we also pray for our law enforcement. May the cancer of racism and injustice and systemic brutality be rooted out from within. We pray your justice on those who have abused and continue to abuse their power. And Lord, may the many officers who do not stand for those things, may those who stand for justice, may those who stand for freedom be emboldened in this time as people of great courage who say no more. No more of this on our watch. Lastly, we pray for the city of Minneapolis and for the growing number of cities around our nation besieged by violence. May today, in this season of Pentecost, the season that we celebrate the coming of your Spirit, may this be a day when the consuming fire of your peace be allowed to flourish. For your healing on us, we pray. For your grace, we pray. For listening ears and open eyes to the sin of racism in our own midst, we pray. 
keep us from becoming numb. But instead, may we learn from this grave injustice, O God, that your matchless, ageless voice speaks again through us to declare the beauty of all of your children, that your kingdom may come in this place today. Spirit, rain down on us. It is in your name, the name above all names, the power above all powers, in the name of the liberating king that we pray. Amen.